When natural disasters strike, as they did repeatedly this summer and fall on the Gulf of Mexico, in the Caribbean, and on the Atlantic coast, basic human needs drive recovery. That means shelter, clothing, and yes, food. Faced with calamity, we define our society by how we meet those basic needs. Our responses to hunger become important and abiding measures of community. By God, it was like a magic show. At one point, we were putting out fifteen to 16,000 meals a day and running 5 to 15 trucks east and west. You're listening to Gravy. 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 Stories of the changing American South told through the foods we eat. We're a production of the Southern Foodways Alliance, and I'm John T. Edge, your host. Today, Gravy travels to the Gulf Coast of Texas in the immediate aftermath of Hurricane Harvey with a Houston chef and his business partner wife. In a collaboration with Eater, Barry Yeoman brings us a story of disaster and resilience, of hunger and humanity. The Friday I met Brian and Jennifer Caswell, they were 12 days out from opening Oxbow 7, a hotel restaurant in downtown Houston with a menu inspired by the bayous of the Gulf Coast. But instead of tweaking ingredients, they and their employees were loading a convoy of trucks, preparing for a 450-mile overnight road trip. All right. We're going to stack all those uh, flatbeds of chicken so that it's as tight as it can be. We can put those eggs right inside them because those boxes will fit. Around the corner, Brian was attaching his Ford Ram to a small refrigerated trailer. He's six foot five, with a mop of dark hair and an unfussy beard. And being a chef, he was lubricating the hitch in a rather unconventional manner. No, no WD-40, I gotta use a little, little cooking oil. When Hurricane Harvey made landfall two weeks earlier, unleashing 30 trillion gallons of rain on the region, the Caswells turned their water-damaged flagship restaurant, Reef, into a relief operation. Some days it turned out thousands of meals for first responders and displaced Houstonians. Now, the couple was heading down to the Texas coast, which had been pummeled by Harvey and in some places destroyed. Joining them were a handful of employees and volunteers. Brian made it clear to me that the decision to take off time from the new restaurant was not his. But Rockport, the beach community that took the most direct hit, was special to them and it was hurting. 80% of its buildings were damaged, and a third were destroyed completely. The town still didn't have electricity or safe drinking water. Jennifer came into the hotel on the first day of me getting back in there cooking, and she goes, "Uh, so we're leaving on Friday. And I said, what do you mean we're leaving on Friday? I go, she goes, we're leaving on Friday, we're going to Rockport. Have you heard? The place is devastated. You know, I I was like, I have to get back to this hotel thing. And then, you know, she reminded me about what's going on in, in, uh, in, in Rockport. And, and basically, she beat me over the head a little bit. And I realized, you know, you're right. We have to go. There's no choice. And so they were stacking these trucks with food donated by vendors and by other chefs. Duckling meat, tomatoes, bell peppers, bananas, chickens, peaches, brisket, liquid eggs from a cruise ship, lots of water foil pans, bleach for cleaning. We took off for Rockport, but first, a detour to Seadrift, Texas, population 1,500, 
on a bay 80 miles north of Corpus Christi. We stopped at a makeshift drop point for relief supplies. It was a metal barn decorated on the inside with rifles, antlers, duck decoys, and military medals. Outside sat its owner, Butch Hodges, a 74-year-old Vietnam vet who helps run fishing trips for other wounded combat veterans. Well, we catch uh, the spotted sea trout, flounder, black drum, and red drum mainly. We've had boys with no legs and no eyes fishing and, and just have a big time. You just set him on the boat seat and when he hand him a rod and reel with a fish on it, just turn him in the direction the fish is and he'd big smile that wide. Butch called the barn his man cave. He often hangs out there with his veteran buddies, cooking meals together on the commercial stove. Since Harvey, he had been sleeping there too. Well, we lost the three rooms on the south side of the house. That was the direction of the force of wind and it come in around the windows and under the doors. We got water in our home and it rent the carpets in all three rooms and furniture and I'm not even able to uh, stay at home. I'm staying here in the barn because I don't have a bed. Brian and Jennifer dropped off some provisions at the man cave. Their real reason for coming to Seadrift, though, was to check on Tay and Lisa Wen, the Vietnamese-American couple who supply the Caswell's restaurants with soft-shell crabs. We drove down to the wharf. A sign warned us to watch out for alligators. At the Wen's Crab House, music poured from competing speakers, some in Spanish, some in Vietnamese. They said hi to Tay, who put them on speakerphone with his wife, Lisa. Uh, Jennifer, do you want to talk to you? Hi, Miss Lisa. Do you remember Jennifer? And Brian, the big guy who cooks with you. Cook, eat, shop, sell, egg roll. Movie, okay, here. Hi. The crab house looked like an open covered porch with a commanding view of San Antonio Bay. That's not what it had looked like two weeks earlier. This used to all be enclosed. And over to our right is an area that is where the softies Soft-shell crabs, when they're in season, um, that's where they, they sit there and they watch them to release their shells. Um, wait, wait, wait to molt. When they molt. And uh, a softie is a, it's a delicacy. It's one of our favorite things down here in South Texas. Last time we were here, we had uh, lunch with them right there on that little gravel piece. There's a table, it used to be a table right there. What was lunch? Their version of a gumbo, actually, but there's no roux, no filet in it. But it was uh, like a true fisherman stew, you know, like a, like a, like a, you know, what, what they caught that day. Now the building was missing entire walls. There were piles of drywall and exposed insulation. Workers were using chemicals and flames to pull up what remained of the flooring. Brian and Jennifer have offered to help pay for the rebuilding, but the winds have declined anything but a loan. What had happened was the water came in all the way to the ceiling, and when the water does that, it then just tosses everything around. You lose some stuff out the front, you lose some stuff out the windows, you lose some stuff just because it's been waterlogged, and they've lost everything, literally everything, which is why we wanted to stop in and see exactly what we needed to do to help, because like I said, they don't want a handout, they want to do this themselves. How are you feeling right now? I really want to cry, I've been crying a lot. <laughs> Not today, hopefully, but when I first started out, um, found out that they that this was happening because they told us that they were fine. And uh, we called a chef that's down the street. 
And he said, no, they're not fighting. No, they lost everything. He just told me, he said, um, you use that money for somebody that really needs it. And I said, uh, I said, I said, look, man, if, if you're not going to let us help you, then you're going to have to tell Jennifer yourself because I'm not going to tell her. I'm not going to tell her. And he, he looked at me and he said, I'm not going to tell her. The Texas Gulf Coast has a tidal pull on both Brian and Jennifer. It informs their vacation planning, their philanthropy, and definitely Brian's career as a chef. For both of them, their love of water can be traced back to childhood. I was, you know, like a bayou hook fin. You know, I was kicked out of the house and, and I never spent summers in my home. My folks always sent me to the bay or to a ranch or, or something where I was just always out. We had creeks behind our house and so we'd go out with the Oscar Mayer sandwich meat and, you know, a twig and string, and we'd be fishing for crawfish, which is absolutely ridiculous, and on occasion we'd find some. And it was cast nets, it was seining, it was fishing, it was wading, it was digging in the mud. My father gave me these books of fauna and flora of the Gulf Coast, of shorebirds, and it was about identifying birds, and for some reason, this is just all I cared about between 8 and, like, 25 Jennifer, who is wiry and blue-eyed and something of a human pogo stick, imagined becoming a marine biologist. Instead, she became the chief operating officer for most of her husband's six restaurants. Brian's early restaurant career took him to coastlines around the world. New York, Barcelona, the Bahamas, Hong Kong, Bangkok. Being away from the water, he says, would have made him feel caged. That would drive me crazy. I would fucking flip out. For me, uh, the ocean is this vast, in one way it's completely empty, and in the other way it's, it's, it's like the unknown, filled, teeming with life. Brian eventually moved home to Houston and opened Reef, a Gulf seafood restaurant. He became well known for his use of bycatch, species that come up accidentally in commercial nets, but taste really good. Eating them, he argues, is more sustainable than discarding them, which is generally what happens. Brian found a fishmonger who specialized in bycatch, including some exotic species. And there were a couple of fish on that list that I didn't think existed in the Gulf. That's what I wanted. Like, I wanted to see a freaking red hake from the Gulf. I wanted to see a queen snapper from seven from 100 miles offshore of, of Freeport. I didn't think they existed, and they did. And then since then, we've served over 92 different species out of the out of reef that are out of the Gulf. 92, which is probably the thing I'm most proud of in my career. Brian and Jennifer started dating in 2013. Their third date was on his boat. That actually... It wasn't just on a boat. It was 60 miles offshore yeah. on a boat with nobody else. And I'm like, my mom goes... um, so let me know when you guys leave the dock and try not to let them throw you overboard. Like, I hope you guys are, you know, you won't, you know them well enough. And I was like, okay, okay. <laughs> it may or may not have been a test. After they got married in 2014, the couple talked about starting an organization to support coastal conservation and coastal communities. Last year, they launched the Southern Salt Foundation, which raises money in part through celebrity chef dinners 
Their long-term goal is to fund a research and education center on the Gulf Coast. But in the aftermath of Harvey, there were more immediate needs. And so, leaving the shell of a crab house in Seadrift, the Caswells drove another hour south to devastated Rockport. Coming up, Mercy Chefs in Rockport and an outpouring of culinary relief in Houston. That's ahead. Lodge Cast Iron first opened its founder doors in 1896. Since then, they've produced everything from clothing irons to garden gnomes. This year, they've added a new Lodge Wildlife series. Get a skillet with a duck, deer, or bear on the back. Your choice. The look is different, but the quality is the same. For Lodge's support of generations of cooks and their support of this podcast, we thank them. And now, back to Barry Yeoman. It was dark when we pulled into Rockport, and by that I mean really dark. With the power out, there was just enough light to make out the fact that the town was in shambles. We drove past storefronts where their roofs sheared off, and apartment buildings reduced to wood piles. There was debris everywhere and a faint smell of rot. And this was two weeks after the storm blew through, wiping out entire neighborhoods and blowing houses into the Gulf of Mexico. There was obviously so much need. And yet, driving through town, Brian and Jennifer were having trouble figuring out where to drop off their food. Our caravan kept texting one another as we chased down false leads. I've been through a lot of hurricanes. I've never seen anything like this. It's like the fucking Wild West. I mean, it's bad. Camps set up in different places. There's different factions, and they're kind of, some of them are aggressive towards other ones, and some are aren't. There's just all this, all this just kind of bizarre. Finally, they found what they were looking for a parking lot bathed in floodlights. This was the volunteer operation run by Mercy Chefs, a Virginia-based Christian ministry that sets up mobile kitchens at disaster sites. The Caswells introduced themselves to the chef in charge. Lisa Saylor had tattooed arms and a shock of pink hair and a brisk efficiency that gave no truck to the fact that she had been cooking for 11 days straight. She hadn't left the lot in all that time. In fact, she had been sleeping just a few yards away inside a bus. Talking over the sound of generators, Lisa told us that this was her 37th deployment. You know, the disasters bring out the very best in people and the very worst. Today I had two people who lost everything they owned come to volunteer because they said, we just can't sit around anymore. It's been amazing. I keep saying, okay, God, what are you doing? Am I like going to feed the state of Texas for the next 10 years? Because people just keep driving up with food. And, and we literally have had not had to purchase hardly any food since we've been here. Relying on donations can be tricky, she said. One donor might bring enough food for 300 plates and another for 200. But at any given time, there might be 1,600 mouths to feed, which means switching menus partway through a meal service. It doesn't make it very easy because you can't plan anything. We got a myriad of things in there, okay. a lot of each one. Okay. We'll give you an inventory list. Okay. We can unload it if you want. While most of the crew unloaded, Lisa gave Jennifer and me a tour of Mercy Chef's operation. She started with the water purification system. Remember, there was no safe drinking water except from bottles. And then we moved on to the kitchen. This is a 32-foot, fifth-wheel mobile kitchen. It's basically a commercial kitchen that's built on wheels. So we have a 30-gallon tilt skillet, 
and a double stack Baker's Pride oven and a six burner range. We're doing about 2,800 to 3,000 covers a day. And so we're using this equipment over and over all day long. We never turn it off. What has been on the menu? Well, yesterday we fed pork tenderloin with a mango and roasted red pepper chutney. And we fed that with a blueberry maple sausage dressing and roasted squash and zucchini, which was given to us from a local farmer's market. And we served that with a blondie brownie. That's a really impressive menu. Yes, we're all about doing restaurant quality meals. Um, when they open up their box, we really want them to open that up and just be like, wow, a moment of what it might be like to be at home. How have people been reacting? People are so grateful. They um, are pretty in despair to see their town so destroyed, and this town is literally destroyed. And they still have no water, and they have no power, so they're unable to cook at home, and there are no businesses open in the entire town. So they cannot go to a restaurant and sit down and have any kind of normal life. So they're very grateful to have a home-cooked type meal, a restaurant quality meal, something hot. Meanwhile, across the noisy lot, Brian and the crew are unloading. Some of the high-end product raise eyebrows, including the ranch-raised Wagyu beef that came from three different purveyors. When the guy picked up that box and he saw Wagyu beef, his eyes lit up like a Christmas tree, man. He was so excited. He's like, 250 pounds of Wagyu, holy shit. But that's that 20 seconds of normality that sometimes you can provide with food in a total disaster area. A guy bites into something that reminds him of home or his grandma or hell, it's just the first hot meal he's had in a week. And he's, it's transcending. It takes you back to a spot where everything was okay and it gives you comfort, maybe just for a second, but it's still some comfort. I don't want to leave you with the impression that Brian and Jennifer were unique in feeding their neighbors. After Harvey, I spent almost a week in Texas and heard one story after another after another. Some of those stories you might have heard too. The four bakers who were trapped inside El Bolillo Bakery and spent two days baking more than 4,000 pounds of pan dulce and Mexican sandwich bread. The Houston chefs who came together at a commissary kitchen called the Midtown Kitchen Collective. Their website, I Have Food, I Need Food, helped steer an estimated quarter million meals to evacuees and first responders. But I met other folks too, whose stories you probably haven't heard. I met a hunter in Katy, Texas named Gerald Schneider, who, once the floodwaters subsided in his neighborhood, pulled a bunch of deer meat out of his freezer. One of his friends hauled a big grill to a nearby outlet mall, and they started cooking venison sausages and venison burgers for the rescuers. The National Guard would come over and tell us things like, we haven't had a hot meal in three days. We've only ate MREs. And so I think at that point is when we all just literally looked at each other and were like, this is going to get real. I met a private catering chef named Daisy Durham, who also tends bar at a hotel at the Texas Medical Center. For the first few days of the storm, she stayed at the hotel and mixed drinks for the nurses and doctors coming off their shifts. When she got home, Daisy couldn't stand not helping people. She made a few calls, and next thing she knew, she was barking orders at a team of volunteers who were cooking fish tacos for first responders. 
When they ran out of food, Daisy turned to her neighbors and to an organization of fans of the English soccer team Arsenal. They donated enough money for her to produce a thousand servings of shepherd's pie. She then recruited SUV drivers to deliver the meals to the National Guard. And because of those thousand meals that we deployed, a thousand uh, MREs were able to be redirected to Port Arthur, which had been hit more severely than Houston had been. And I thought, well, I'm going to do this again tomorrow. Here's the thing about Daisy. When we met, more than two weeks after the storm, she was still going full tilt, even as friends were urging her to slow down and take care of herself. The doing good is what keeps me from having to really look at how bad it is. My house was fine. My daughter's fine. My cats are fine. My kitchen is fine. And what did I do to deserve everything being fine? When so many people don't have fine. When so many people lost everything. And I'm safe. And I wouldn't give up my safety for anything. But I I feel like I have to earn it at this point. I don't know if Houston, the largest city in the South, is exceptional in this regard. Houstonians make a strong case that it is. The scholar Brene Brown has said that Houston operates by four rules. Love big work hard, do right by your neighbors in the city, and don't drive slow in the passing lane. I won't touch that last rule, but the first three were evident during and after Harvey. Here's Jennifer Caswell. To see Houstonians the way that they have banded together, we're like that a lot. If there's something bad, we band together. And things like political opinions oftentimes go right out the window because we know when it comes down to it, we're Houstonians and this is what we do. The last time I saw the Caswells, it was three days after we came back from Rockport and eight days before the opening of Oxbow 7. They were back inside the new restaurant, ironing out all the inevitable details, among them the drink menu, as bar manager Judith Petrosky explained to me. So we're planning on doing a seasonal tonic. This season will be a watermelon tonic with a little bit of kefir lime leaf and orange peels and deliciousness with soda and gin. On the eve of their launch, the Caswell still weren't done with hurricane relief. Three days before opening Oxbow 7, Jennifer sent me an email at 4 a.m. She mentioned that they were about to send 800 lunches to a neighborhood that had lost everything. Braised beef shoulder, summer squash, lentils, and black beans. We all know how a hot meal can help bring comfort, she wrote. I wasn't terribly surprised by the message. Recovering from Harvey is going to be a long, expensive process. Mitigating the next calamity will mean tackling issues like growth, infrastructure, and climate change. In the short term, though, there have been a lot of Houstonians making sure their neighbors' bellies remain full. That is, after all, what the city does. Today's story was brought to you by Barry Yeoman, a print and broadcast journalist who lives in Durham, North Carolina. Richard Ziegler recorded narration. Jenny Ament, a contributing editor, for The Organist, that's the McSweeney's podcast. She mixed this episode. Featured music for this episode is by Gustavo Santalala, and our theme music is by Wendell Patrick. Dunner music is by Jazar. Managing editor for this podcast and all other SFA content is Sarah Camp Milo, and our intern is Robin Miniter. 
You may find photos and other resources for this episode on our website at southernfoodways.org. While you're there, consider a donation. Your gifts make gravy and all other SFA media possible. One more thing before you go. Please remember, as you go about your day, make cornbread, not war.